4: Most of our engagement with the poor is to offer them a program. The poor are clients that come and receive counseling or food, and then we send them away. But I wonder, how many hours a week was Jesus doing justice and mission? For Jesus, doing justice was not a set of activities. It was an ontology. It was a way of being all the time.
2: Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot with Faith Radio. You know, last week we thought about the question of our individual callings as Christians and some of the issues around that. Well, this week, we want to look at how that calling is lived out, particularly in the area of being a good neighbor or hospitality, if you will. Later in the show, we'll hear a panel discussion led by you, Gabe, from a previous Q conference. But first, we want to listen to a talk that was presented at Q 2018 just a few weeks ago. Can you tell us about it?
3: It was a talk that we essentially commissioned around the theme of trying to understand what does it look like for us to practice hospitality better in our culture. We know that historically, this has been one of the roles the church has played, and it's done such a great job at it. And when the church is at its best, it is hospitable. It's inviting people in. It's inviting the stranger to the table. It's opening our doors, our arms, our families, our churches, and inviting people into these new spaces. And I think in our culture today, people are getting a little more uncomfortable with the stranger. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Now, if someone's a stranger, there almost seems to be Uh, a motivation to say, because they're a stranger, we'll stay away from them, or I'm not sure I can trust them, or what if they hurt me, or "What, what if I don't really know how to get along with them, or what if they think differently than me? And so it's in that kind of a space that we wanted to have a talk that reminded us of how God actually works through strangers and, in fact, many times shows up in these unexpected ways. And so the talk was called Finding God in Unexpected Places, And we invited Krish Kandaya to come and give this talk. Now, Krish lives in the UK. He lives in Oxfordshire with his wife and, get this, seven children through both birth, fostering, and adoption. Krish is an incredible author. He's a presenter. He just released a book called God is Stranger, Finding God in Unexpected Places. And he really brings like a fresh look on some of these difficult, awkward, and troubling Bible passages that talk about how God uses strangers to actually intervene in circumstances, to remind people of who he is and what he cares for. And in this talk, Chris does the same thing. He just reminds us simply of where God tends to show up uh, by speaking to this need of orphan care, of what it looks like to care for those children, many of which he's adopted and practiced this in his own community. So he's living this out from a place of conviction, from a place of this being true in his own life. And so I want to invite you in to listen now, to Krish Kandaya, talk about how we find God in unexpected places.
4: It's 4.45 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, and the phone rings. It's social services. The office is closing in 15 minutes' time, and they are desperate. Krish, we know you've already got a foster placement with you, But could you possibly take another one? Okay, tell me a little bit more about this child. Well, we can't tell you much. All we can tell you is he's a biter. That is not what you want to (laughs) hear. Biter. What does he bite? Does he bite stuff? I can cope with him biting stuff. We've got a cat. We've got all sorts of mess all over our furniture. I can cope with him biting stuff. But if he bites people... We're in a different frame, aren't we? I've got six other people that live in my house. Is it safe for me to bring this child into my home? And that's when the theological battle begins to kick off. Biter. That is an inadequate description of a human person, isn't it? You and I, we're more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Or the worst thing that's ever been done to us. Biter. That doesn't reflect the fact that this child is made in the image of God. And how I treat this child is a reflection of the way that I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul and mind. And so in he came. We welcomed him into our home. He was three years old. His family were from Nigeria. He had had eight different homes already in his life. He could barely speak. Is it any wonder why he might bite just to let the world know that he's here and that he matters? When he lived with us, he bit a lot of stuff, mostly sausages and pizza. (laughs) But he turned our world upside down in all the best ways. This little boy challenged my definition of worship and my understanding of mission. The key verse that helps me understand what kind of worship God actually wants is James chapter 1, verse 27. Maybe you know it. True religion, true worship, that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is a kicking worship band, an amazing organ recital, jazz vespers, beautiful, but not what God asked for. God said the worship that he's looking for is to care for the widow and orphan in their distress. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's the book of James. Martin Luther thought it was a, a book of straw. So what about the rest of scripture? Isaiah chapter 1. I discovered recently there's more than one chapter in Isaiah. (laughs) Isaiah 53 was the only important bit, I thought. Isaiah chapter 1. God says to the church, stop your worship. Stop your meaningless gatherings. Stop lifting your hands up in prayer. Why? Because you've forgotten to contend the cause of the widow and the orphan." Isaiah 58, God says, fasting is a waste of time if you're not sharing your food with the hungry and welcoming the stranger. Matthew 25, Jesus' clearest exposition of what the final judgment will be based on. Do you know what? It isn't a theological test. It isn't whether you came forward at the beginning of a Billy Graham event. The test of whether you're in the kingdom or not is whether you've received grace from God... And then you've passed it on to the least and the last and the lost. And if you haven't, however well you sing, however many Bible verses you know, God says, away from me. I never knew you. That little boy changed my understanding of mission. I love it that the church is waking up to mission. 30 years ago in the UK, many churches were just doing services for Christians. We were putting on um, preaching sessions and worship times, maybe a prayer meeting if you're lucky. Now our churches are opening their doors and we're welcoming the needy in. It's a brilliant move forward. But most of our engagement with the poor is to offer them a program. The poor are clients that come and receive counseling or food and then we send them away. And our participation is to put ourselves on a rota. Maybe for an hour or two a week, I do justice. I do mission. But I wonder, how many hours a week was Jesus doing justice and mission? Two hours on a rota? No. For Jesus, doing justice was not a set of activities. It was an ontology. It was a way of being All the time. I meet amazing foster parents. When are they doing justice ministry? Is it at 2 a.m. in the morning when the baby won't go to sleep? Is it at 7.30 when you're trying to help a child that's been abused know that food is safe to eat? Is it 8.30 when you're at the school gate and you're trying to introduce a new child to the other children in the playground so they might play with them? Is it 11 o'clock in the morning when you get called to the head teacher's office because your child is acting up and you're a terrible parent? Yes, all of the above. Friends, we're called to another level of worship and another level of mission. Where we give ourselves to the poor. We welcome those that are in need into our homes as family. I love all my children the same. I have seven that live in my household. I don't say to those kids, hey, birth children, come down. You're the special ones. Poor children, you can come down for the second sitting. No, I love them all with a passion. And God calls us wherever we're able to open our hearts and our homes to those that are most in need. To get up close and personal. To love the poor as our families, not as a project. I believe if the church steps up on this, this can be a game changer for the way that we relate. Firstly, to vulnerable children. I believe in fostering and adoption, not because foster carers need money or because adopters need children. No, because we need to step up and be the parents that these children need. This is not about us getting what we want. It's about these kids getting what they need. So we can do it, friends. In America right now, there are 100,000 children in foster care that are ready to be adopted. It will not cost you a single cent to adopt them. All the legal fees are paid for by your government. 100,000, that's on us. The God that says, I want worship by care, caring for the widow and the orphan, he also sees those 100,000 children waiting for adoption. What does that say about us, the church? These children need homes. If we do it, we'll change their lives. Kids that age out of foster care, fall off a cliff, you see them again in your prisons, you see them again in your homeless populations, they're more vulnerable to sexual exploitation. We can make a difference. It'll be the hardest thing you ever do, but it'll be the best thing you ever do. Friends, if we do this, I think we need at least one family per church in America to step forward for fostering and adoption, and we meet the need. That would change the church's worship. We offer God what he asked us to give him in the first place. But thirdly, it would change the way the nation thinks about you. Adoption and fostering is politically impeccable. You demonstrate a lived parable of the grace of God to those that are most needy. It's 11 minutes past four. I've left my phone on a train and a nice person has handed it in at the next station. So this three-year-old boy called the Biter, he's never been on a train before. And so he comes with me and he does it all wrong. He's standing on the seat. He's got his nose pressed against the window. He's shouting everything he can see. Bus, tree, car, sheep, faster, faster, faster. All the commuters are kind of laughing at him. but They're loving this moment. And I'm having a God moment. I didn't meet God that day in church or in Jerusalem. I met him on a train carriage. As I saw this little boy that the world had dismissed as a biter, full of joy and energy and grace. And I want to sing, but I'm British, so I don't. But I remember <laughs> Zephaniah 3:16 and 17. God rejoices over us with singing. And I want to take delight in this little boy because I know his story. And by the grace of God, I've had the opportunity to play just a small part. Friends, let's step up and give every child that needs it the home that they need. Friends, together we can do it. Thank you.
3: What a great talk, but what a convicting talk. I mean, I think of some of the thoughts here for us to just sit in and to to think about and to reflect on. The idea of the poor being clients that we just serve and then send away or how we think about this as programs versus just being our lifestyle. And I think as Chris communicates this, it's a call to all of us. It's a call to the church to recognize who God holds the dearest. I think of the Beatitudes and some of our conversations at Q. This year we focused on the Beatitudes and kind of the upside down world and the way that Jesus sees it and the way he calls us to realize that he kind of shows up in the places with those who are underserved, with those who are the meek, with those who maybe it doesn't appear has anything to offer, and yet they truly understand the kingdom of God better than the rich man. And so let's all just be encouraged this week to open our eyes a little bit more, to consider what does it look like for us to care for those who have needs and not to think of it as a project, not to think of it as just a mission. While there are many great programs and our churches need support, they need volunteerism, they need that, that's a part of how we serve. But what if we took a closer look to say, how is that going to show up in my daily life? How is that showing up every week? How is this just a part of who I am, that part of my interaction, part of my friendships are with people who are different than me, that have a different socioeconomic reality, maybe a different racial reality or ethnic reality? But in general, how do I be a kind of person that can show up in those kinds of spaces where the strangers are those who start to become my friends and start to teach me a lot more about who I am in the eyes of Christ and not just who I think they are in my own eyes.
2: On that note, let's transition to a panel discussion that you, Gabe, led in 2017 with Eugene Cho, Julie Mavis, and Precious Jones about how each was compelled to live out hospitality in their individual context. We'll be listening to just a portion of this panel discussion edited to fit our time today. Let's listen as, Gabe, you start this conversation with Eugene Cho.
3: You're a first-generation immigrant, and I know this means a lot to you because you've grown up. Having to understand in American life, what does this look like to be somebody who's the other? Who's not just the common person that most people in America have come to appreciate. But at the age of six, you move to this country and you've experienced it. Will you tell us a little bit about your story?
5: Yeah. You know, in our culture today, uh, there's a lot of dialogue around fear. And part of my story is really about Empathy. And empathy is not possible when we can't place ourselves, even for a glimpse, in someone else's shoes. It's hard to love our neighbors if we don't know our neighbors. It's hard to know our neighbors if we don't place ourselves a little bit in their shoes. So as you said, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, immigrated to the United States when I was six years old. Parents did not tell me that we were going to leave the country. So step foot into San Francisco. Three days later, I'm a student in the first grade class at Sherman Elementary School. And that experience was traumatic. It was incredibly challenging. And a little twist in our story is I also learned later in my life that my parents were also, before the term IDPs became a little bit more normalized in our conversation of refugees, they were IDPs. They were born in what is now called North Korea had to flee because of the rise of communism and grew up in extreme poverty and harsh situations. And I share all of this simply to say that uh, immigration, being the other, uh, being bullied or challenged or having lots of stereotypes about me, it's really shaped, it's been the most dominant filter in which I see the world. And so as I look at all the conversations going on today about refugees and about immigrants and immigration, I'm trying to call people to a deeper sense of empathy.
3: Yeah, there seems to be uh, in American cities, you know, there's been a huge discussion in the last six months about what does it mean to welcome Refugees, is that even our responsibility as Americans? Should we just keep everybody out? And I mean, it strikes me to hear a story like yours as a six year old Mm -hmm. coming to this country and, and all that's happened in your life as a result. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, what would you say to Christians who all they hear on the news is that they should be fearful of refugees or that refugees are coming through our system and, and they don't understand how intense this system is? Help educate us a little bit.
5: Well, I think we need to really watch what we're allowing to shape our worldview. We all watch the news, so I'm not suggesting that we turn off the TV stations or completely be deaf to media. But if we're only hearing a certain lens or certain voices, that's what's going to shape our worldview. So as we listen to what pundits and politicians and media speak to us about, I think we have to also hear what the scriptures say as the people of God. The scripture, it's not just a one-time verse here or there. It is peppered throughout, it's pervasive throughout scripture that God calls us to have a leaning towards the outsiders, the, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners. It's all over the scripture. And I think as the people of God, we have to acknowledge that we're afraid. It sounds really weird, but I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that we're afraid. I'm a believer. I'm a pastor. I'm afraid. But as I get together with other believers and as we talk these things through, I think what will happen is deeper empathy, a call to be disciples, to follow after Christ, to not just talk about Samaria. Samaria but to actually walk through Samaria as Jesus instructed us to do in John 4.4. Yeah,
3: that's great, Eugene. Well, I want to turn our attention to Julie. Now, Julie is somebody I've just really come to appreciate. Julie, your story is so inspiring because you, you really show, I think, all of us what it looks like for a person who's seeking to follow Christ who starts to feel like a little tap on their shoulder that says, hey, I've got to do something more than just talk and learn about this. I've got to do something, and you've done something. And part of what you've done, you and your husband created something called Adopt Colorado Kids. You live in Colorado, and you looked around in the state of Colorado, I know, and realized there was a problem going on with Colorado's kids. Would you tell us a little bit about the passion that you've developed and how that came to be?
0: It was around uh, 10 years ago, and I was just feeling lost and just really wanting to serve God, but I didn't know how, didn't know what that meant, and I just started reading uh, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, and the words orphan, care for orphans, just kept popping out. I was trying to figure out what that meant because all I knew to care for orphans was go to another country and work on an orphanage. And so I just started praying, and I was like, God... How do I care for orphans? What does this mean? What does this look like? And he just led me down a path of foster care. And with all these kids coming into my home, I started learning about why these kids were coming in and why they were in foster care. And I started remembering back my years of working on the orphanages. And I had talked to one of the leaders and said... How did all these parents, you know, die? Why are all these kids orphaned? What happened? There's so many of them. And they said, well, they didn't die. They just were abandoned and they, their parents are in jail or they abuse the kids or they were prostitutes. And all of a sudden it was like I was connecting the dots of in other countries it's called orphanages. In the United States it's called foster care. It's like, ah, I got it. That was my calling. So in the years of doing foster care, uh, we had one little boy um, from birth to nine months. He was addicted to drugs, picked him up from the hospital, and was really working with his birth parents to get him back home. One day, the caseworker called and said, the case has changed and he is not going to be going back home. He's going up for adoption. Would your family consider adopting him? And I said, I'm really interested, but just what would happen if I said no? She said, oh, there's a whole long line of families just waiting for the babies. She said, I just wish there were families waiting for all the other kids. She said, in Colorado, there's over 800 kids available for adoption. Nobody even knows about those kids. And there was something inside of me that just broke, and I just... I wanted to do something to help. I thought these kids deserve families and to be loved on yeah. and wanted to do something about it.
3: You guys got pretty creative. I mean, you you took pictures, right, of yeah, foster yeah. care children, started telling their stories. Tell us a little bit more about what's been happening now in Colorado since you guys started leading this effort.
0: Yeah, it's exciting. We basically worked all over Colorado and figured they're the best recruiters. As long as we get their photos out there and their videos and give them a face and a voice... It was powerful what was happening. And the second thing was getting these faces and voices into churches. By far and wide, the churches are where the families were. They just opened their doors and took in these kids. And it was amazing when you combine the visual arts with the churches, standing back and letting God move. It was just powerful to watch.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. It's been fun talking to you to just understand how much the state government's they do care about seeing this done, but when you try to recruit families, you're finding that it's the church is the place where the, the kind of theology that we talk about, yeah. this, real, this idea of loving neighbor, starts to come to, to reality. Precious Jones is with us, and in Cincinnati, Ohio, where you're at, you're currently the Youth and Mentor Development Director at City Gospel Mission, and you are investing in the lives of people who really need it. Will you tell us a little bit more about mentoring? Like, why is this so important?
1: Sure. So, as Christians, I think if we want to be good neighbors, Mm -hmm. we have to engage in mentoring because the need is critical especially in our under-resourced communities. So if we look at over the past 50 years, we've seen an increase in the number of fatherless homes in our community. And this is directly correlated to some poor outcomes for our youth. I mean, outcomes that look look like 71% of all high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth in prison from fatherless homes. And lastly, 63% of our youth suicides are from fatherless homes. So at a national level, this represents an estimated 24.7 million kids that are growing up in homes without a biological father present. This is not just at the national level. Internationally, we see the same trends in places such as Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. And so these numbers are staggering, but really... For me, I remain pretty encouraged because I know that the church has an opportunity to use the platform of mentoring to model what it looks like to be a good neighbor. And the reason I know that is because that's my story. You know, I grew up in a home without my father. I grew up in a neighborhood that was riddled with crime. And although my mom was pretty hardworking, the odds were pretty stacked against her as well. She became a mother at the age of 16. And so as a young person, I always kind of felt unintentionally passed over. Um, and, and that was until mentoring took place. So after being mentored, I went from being a kid that had low self-esteem who didn't think I would even go to college to being one that went to college, became an engineer and now advocates in my community for at-risk youth. All because one Christian took the time to be present in our wow. community and play basketball with us. So when I think about mentoring and its potential for our communities, I really see that it has a potential to connect neighbor to neighbor.
2: This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, and if you'd like to hear the full panel discussion, there was more to it, then go to qideas.org and search for the talk, The Future of Neighboring. Gabe, as we close out this week's program, maybe our listeners are wondering, along with the resources and talks at qideas.org on hospitality and neighboring, again, a topic that you and the team have been addressing for some time, and that includes the full talk we heard earlier in the program from Krish Kandaya. What are some other valuable resources you'd recommend? Consider
3: picking up Chris's book, God is Stranger. It's a great book. You know, Andy Crouch wrote the foreword to this book. And if those of you who've been around Q for a while, you know, Andy Crouch is kind of a mainstay at Q, always challenging us. And, and when I read his foreword and knew that him and Chris have been friends for a really long time and started to understand the relationship there and the respect there, I knew this was the kind of book that I'd want people at Q to be aware of and to be thinking about and to consider and to read. So pick up the book, God is Stranger, Finding God in Unexpected Places. Google Krish on YouTube. Listen to some of his talks. Just a fascinating, fascinating leader that's doing some amazing work in the UK and someone I know all of us can learn from. Well, I hope you have a wonderful week. We look forward to continuing the learning, continue to listen to some of these new talks coming out of Q 2018. And then learning together and hopefully creating some great conversations, some great ideas for each of us to reflect on as we try to be faithful, to stay curious, think well, and advance good.